0: Good morning. Good morning. Hope you noticed by our new uh, video that uh, we're entered into a new section, a new series in our study of the Gospel of in uh, Genesis. And we, our focal text for the day is Genesis 25. We're going to look at 19 to 34. That's going to be our focal text. We'll fold in the rest of it too it, um, as we go this morning. And so we're going to we're going to. Tackle this text like we we have been. We're just going to let the narrative unfold. And so, uh, let's pray for our time together as we get started. Lord, we bow before you. As we have been singing and as now we're going to look in your word. You are a God who causes things. Who creates things. Who determines things. And you are our Father. So, God, I pray for us as your people that you would allow us this morning to peer into the immensity of your very being. And that way we may clearly, simply see from your word what you have done what you have said so that we may know what you are going to do. So Lord, open our eyes and fill us with your Spirit. Give us your wisdom that you purchased for us. You bought that with your blood. And so we ask you, Lord, please give us your wisdom this morning as we look at this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 23 years ago today, I married my wife. And uh, we, are, we got married at Parkwood uh, in Gastonia. And we've have been growing spiritually here and together ever every since. And I said in the first service, my only regret as a husband is I, I didn't love her more like Christ through the years. And even in that, I, we have both seen God's grace and God's mercy to us. But when we got married, we went to Bermuda. Flew into that and got our room, and like everybody does when you get your room, you go out on the balcony. And you, you want to see what kind of view that you paid for. <laughs> you could be looking at a wall; it could be nice. And, and so we looked out. And if you've ever been there or seen pictures, you know the, the water's clear out that far, and you can see even into the water from the balcony. You can see the blues and greens, and even you can tell there's coral underneath there how sad it would have been if we would have just stayed in the room and looked out the balcony at the ocean. We had to go down there, put our feet in the sand and get our snorkel gear and go down into the water. And even as we went in and looked at the the beauty, beauty called to beauty, deep to deep, we realized as though this is as far as I can go, there's more. It's beautiful what I want you to see this morning. We've been looking at the gospel in Genesis. We've been looking at our, at Abraham, and now we've flipped the page in the section, we're going to be looking at Jacob. So flip back with me. Let's remind ourselves where we've been in Genesis 24. 24 and verse 1. Remember, at this point, Abraham is old. It says in verse 1 that he was old, well-advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him. Remember, he didn't have a child. Him and Sarah couldn't have children, and it was years, but now he has Isaac. We get in the picture, we see Isaac last week was 40 years old and not married, and so we have this promise in verse 7 of chapter 24 of blessing. He's the promised offspring, but he's not even married. So, Last week, we saw God's providence as we, as we learned about the God of the details. Determining things down to the minute details causing Rebekah to become Isaac's wife. And if you look at verse 60 in chapter 24, having found Rebekah and traveling back the servant to take her back to Isaac, we see the family praise in verse 60. Hey, may God give you a bunch of children. No kids. So we get this continual cycle. This continual tension. The promised seeds coming. The blessings are there. Then we got this problem. Tensions relieved. Causes another tension. And it compels us constantly forward in the story. We hit chapter 25, it's the same thing. God's blessing continues uninterrupted, one generation to the next. Bringing people, removing people, protecting Isaac. When we hit about verse 7, Abraham is ensured the covenant blessings will continue through Isaac. Verse, in verse 7 to 10, in chapter 25, Abraham dies, 175 years old, and remember, Sarah died. Last week, and buried in the land of promise. This week, Abraham dies and is buried in the land of promise with Sarah. And guess what that means? Had somebody throw the ball to you and say, you got the ball. It's yours. Throw the ball to Isaac. It's his. It's on you now. He is the patriarch of the family. The one who would carry the promised seed. Believe and obey the promised seed. Messiah that's coming. So the story presses us forward every week. Presses us forward with new promises, but also new problems. And when you study it, when you read it, you, you get this deja vu moments that these problems are really not that new. Even the mistakes are the same mistakes. <laughs> the sins of the Father, they're repeating the mistakes. But the promises come. And so when we hit verse 12 of chapter 25, we have this little blurb here about Ishmael reminding them that Ishmael was given a promise. God will fulfill that promise, make them a great nation. They're not the point. Isaac's the point. Now, soon to be Jacob. And so we get these two main figures, Abraham and Jacob, of which Isaac is simply a blurb on the screen. We're not going to be, we've been talking about Abraham forever. We're going to be talking about Jacob for a while. Isaac's very short. The narrator wants us to center our attentions this morning. We're going to, to, we're going to have to fight this. He wants to center our attention on Isaac and now on Jacob. He wants us to get to Jacob as soon as possible and he wants us to lock on to that. Why? Because for God's people who originally was reading this, that was the point. The promised line is being promised. Is it going to happen? Is this problem is, is this going to stop? Is the promise seed going to come? Is she going to have kids? What's going to, what's going to happen? Keep our eyes on the children of promise. And so, as we enter in, the narrator wants to be clear to Israel and wants to be clear to us. The Lord's gracious choice is what provides the continuation of the promise seed. And so we hit verse 19. We're reminded of the families here. We got two families, verse 19 and 20. First, look at verse 19. Abraham followed Isaac. So we got one pretty good family. Come from good stock, so to speak. Abraham is the father of Isaac. And remember that Rebekah is the sister of Laban, kinsman. So both of these are family. We're reminding God's people, reminding us of who the family was. And with this introduction of Laban, we're reminded again this week, there's a Jacob-Laban cycle coming. Now we're reminded here. Don't forget about Laban. He's coming. So Jacob will become Israel, Laban, Syria. I think some of your current events going on. So what's the problem now? Jacob doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Why? Because Rebecca's barren. She's barren. And so this causes the prayer of Isaac. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. For 20 years, having received the promise, they had no children. So Isaac prays. And you got this picture in the Bible, over and over. Open womb, close womb. Pray, womb was closed, God opened it. God opens it. So we see God's provision of the barren womb. So remember, this prayer, this prayer that was answered, oftentimes was accompanied in that day as, it was an entreaty. It was accompanied by a sacrifice. And so this prayer was answered. What was, he, what was Isaac asking God to do? Prayer is when we ask God to invade our lives or someone else's lives with his grace. What we're praying for him to do. God, she needs your grace. God answers her prayer. You want God to invade your life. And so God did. He graciously intervened. Rebecca's this is pregnant now. This is not the first time this has happened. Remember the deja vu kind of moment? So let's turn Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2. So remember Sarah. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived, and bore Abraham, a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken, we are reminded that Sarah was barren. In other words, there's no way that Isaac was coming into being because Sarah's womb was dead. Neither is Genesis 21 or 25. Turn with me to Genesis 30. We're going to see that we're not. it's going to happen again. Genesis 30, look at verse 22. Now Jacob is married, and he marries a woman named Rachel. Verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So, do you see the very clear point? The seed of Abraham comes into existence because of God's miraculous work bringing the seed of life from a barren womb. Three of them. You see in here, barrenness is not an occasion for anxiety. It's simply an opportunity to express and to demonstrate God's sovereign grace. You see, this generation had to learn the lessons just like ours, that their birth into the promise was supernatural. And so is yours. What is the gospel connection here? Let's remind ourselves of what, where, we, where we've been and where we're going. Remember Genesis 3.15. The fall happens. In this penalty phase of the fall, God looks at the serpent and says, One day, from the seed of a woman, you will be defeated. And so the fulfillment of that, Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this promise seed, and it will come to pass. This is where we're going. And so the first point is very clear, although... Isaac and although Rebecca come from good stock, good family, they were unable, insufficient of their own selves to produce the next seed, to to produce the seed that would inherit the covenant promises. So this tells us something of our nature. The nature of man is unable without divine intervention to continue the seed. In other words, bad news and good news this morning. You are unable to fix you. You are unable in and of yourself to please God. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work. But it is the nature of God to provide for His people. And so what do we see? We see first that God sovereignly creates life. And then we see God sovereignly chooses and so we see the Lord's gracious choice of Jacob. This is, this is the point between verses 22 and verses 28. There's one central predominant thing. The oracle of God. God has spoken. Everything else that happens simply prove to the fact and will fall under the fact that God speaks in this section. And why does He speak? Because there's turmoil in the womb. You see, one tension was relieved that it led to another one. We, we don't have children. We've been barren for 20 years. I mean, goodness gracious, he's, Isaac's now 60. And now they get pregnant and here comes the child and all of a sudden there's problems. You, know, you couldn't go to the doctor. Couldn't get an ultrasound. Is this child miscarrying? What's happening? Look at the verse 22. As children struggled together within her, she said... If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. This verb here means crushing or oppressing. She felt like inside of her that either the children were being crushed or she was being crushed. The problem with the seeds. So she prays. The same word, inquiry. She entreats God. What's happening? The, this was the, I thought this was the promised seed. Revelation of God comes in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So, two men in your womb represent two nations that they will be. These two men would found two tribes, and these brothers, that would become nations, would be in constant conflict, both in their boyhood and in the womb and their boyhood and then their descendants. So this struggle that she's experiencing, God said, listen, this is only a precursor to what's going to happen. So Esau would become Edom. Jacob would become Israel. So let us just be reminded about what happens after. Or you see, when, when Israel came out of Egypt, Moses requested from the king of Edom, can we have safe passage? And he would not. He would not let them pass. This incurred after that several battles between these, the Edomites and the Israelites. Edom ended up sided with Babylonia and contributed to the slaughter of the Israelites and the tearing down of their wall. And as we come into the New Testament, Matthew 3, a man named Herod, takes aim at the seed. And guess what he was? It was an Edomite. The evil one has always tried to destroy the seed, but the sovereign Lord will not let it happen. So we see, one quote says, each of these, each of, out of each struggle and in spite of them, God's will is still accomplished. So what can we learn by this? It's God's sovereign choice. He declares what? That the promised line will belong to Jacob. And this is only going to get more clear when the twins are born and the twins are named. Verses 24 to 26. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body, like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. So who was the firstborn? Esau. Remember the oracle through this. Esau was the firstborn, come out red all over and hair all over the place. Said it looked like he had on a hairy cloak. Just thought of that from a pastoral visit. Imagine going to visit a baby and you're like, ooh, look, uh, got a lot of hair. <laughs> so, this is what they named him the hairy one. <laughs> I'd like to have that growing up. It would be, wow, man. In other words, the, the author, the narrator here, who's writing the story, is, is giving you a description to, within view of Esau's destiny that he already knows. And so he does with Jacob. He names him. Esau, by his looks, Jacob, by his actions. So we have a firstborn coming out and here comes Jacob. He grabbed it, got, his, got his heel. I got, I got his foot. I'm not letting go. We've been fighting for nine months. I'm not giving up now. He comes out holding us, So they named him heel grabber. So we have the heel grabber and the hairy one. and so And the author wants to say, okay, focus on Jacob. So, why Jacob? You got the oracle of God. In the, the older will serve the younger. So, what is he saying? Esau's going to serve Jacob. Before they were born, this was a declaration of God. Why? I'm not going to get into Malachi 1. Please read that later. But you need to understand culturally, this wasn't a question cultural reality, the customs of that day is that the older would inherit the birthright. And this was simply the way society worked. And so we see this theme of God, of flipping human customs and the natural order upside down. So here's here's what we see. From the beginning, God chose the younger Abel over Cain, God chose the younger Isaac over Ishmael. God chose today the younger Jacob over Esau, the younger Joseph over his brother, the younger Ephraim over Manasseh, the younger David over his brother, the younger Solomon over his older brother. This is what God has done, unless we venture some idea of that will sound fair. Let's uh, flip over to Matthew 20 because I want you to understand this is the way the kingdom of God works. God doesn't change. And so Jesus tells us a parable in Matthew 20 about a master who had a vineyard. And so he goes out in his vineyard and sees the work to be done. So he goes to the place to where you hire day laborers and he hires him some laborers to work that day, and they agree a day's pay is this, and they go to work. And remember, he goes out every few hours after that, hiring a few more and a few more and a few more, saying, I'll pay you what is right, I'll pay you what is right. And they go to work and go to work. It comes down to one hour left in the day, and he goes out and he he hires him some people, and they go to work too. And what happens? At the end of the workday, he tells the servant, okay, it's time to pay up, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay the last one first. So the last one comes up to get his pay. What does the master give him? A day's pay. Full day's pay. And so the ones, especially the ones who have been in and out all day, they, they're not sure what to think of it, sort of irritated, sort of excited. Well, if he's worth that, then we deserve. Remember this story. What happens? The ones come up and they receive the day's pay too. And what do they say? It's not fair! How dare you not give us what we deserve? What does God say? Matthew 20 and verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So what does he say? Verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. And so we see this is what the Lord has done in this story all the way through and on through into the New Testament. And so Jacob, the last, becomes first. Why? Because the Lord's gracious choice is not dependent on the works of man but on the grace of God. And so the story keeps unfolding as the boys grow up, as we all know. Babies don't stay babies for long. And so in verse 27 of Matthew 25, we see, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so we come to this part where we get a picture of not only Jacob and Esau and who they were, but a picture of Isaac and Rebekah and who they were. And so, lest we think that God chose Jacob because he had really good parents, (laughs) we get a little picture here that, no, they're messed up like the rest of us. (laughs) They showed favorites. I mean, there's just something weird when it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game. You know, it ought to catch you just a little bit. Rebecca loved Jacob, so there was favoritism. This is not the main point of the text. Matter of fact, when you hear the main point of the text, oftentimes we choke on it because everybody's made secondaries primaries. The main point of the text is is that there's a promise. There's an oracle that has come forth, and it matches the promise that has been given to Abraham, and this is going to happen. And yet we see in the midst of it Favoritism by parents and then these two individuals, Jacob and Esau, one wild, free, one loving to live for the day. We all have people we know who live like this. I feel, so I do. I'm going to make a decision. We call it living off the end of our nose. We're going to make a decision. It's what I feel. It's what I'm going to do. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to get what I The other, Jacob's just the opposite. Let's think about this thing. More calm, calculating, the planner. Bible says Jacob was a quiet man, even tempered, and she was thoughtful. Esau is just the opposite, wild, free, boisterous. Here's what you need to see, verses twenty nine to thirty four. There was two hunters that day. Both of them was hunting. It says once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau the bread and the lentil stew. He ate, he drank, and he rose up and went his way. And the Bible says thus Esau despised his birthright. And so we have this one Esau out hunting, comes in, famished. This is probably not the first time this has happened. One thing on his mind, food, hungry, now. It's the way he lived his life. The other was hunting for something else, right? What was he hunting for? Birthright. Mama told me it's going to be mine. So I'm going to help. I'm just going to help kick this ball down the road just a little bit more. So he had a plan. I mean, he had the pot smelling. You ever go by a cookout or somewhere and they got the smoke going up, trying to get you to smell a hamburger or something, pull you in? Probably had sweet tea sitting out there with ice in it. Pulling him in. He's ready for him. He says, You hungry? Let's make a deal. It's got to be today. Feel like we're buying a car, doesn't it? It's got to be today. You can't wait. Don't think about it. Make it. Make your decision right now. See, this was big. It's not as big a deal to us, but when we begin to think it, he wanted his birthright. It's the portion that the heir will carry. As the line, as the promised line, the seed. It's not just that, that the that the heir, the firstborn, would get a double portion of the inheritance, which he did. He was the next patriarch of the family. He carried the spiritual heritage of God's people. This was no small deal. And so you get this hunting expedition of the hairy man and the heel grabber, and this wild man is overcome. By the deceiver. See that in verse 29. Verse 30. It says, let me something to eat. Basically, give me some of that red stuff. That's what he actually said. Give me some of that red stuff right there. And so his physical desires hemmed him in. And though we think that he's the powerful one, that he's the strong one, and the other one's just a little prissy person, we see what happens is Jacob actually overcomes him. Jacob's calm, Jacob's ready, and Jacob deceives him. And so I ask you, with our eyes now on Jacob, does he look like patriarchal material to you? This shrewd deceiver? Can we say with confidence that this is why God chose him? he was a really good liar and he was really calm when he did it. No, the purpose of this is to explain how the birthright becomes Jacob. But listen, there's no winners in this narrative. There's no person who is doing something good but there is a God who's working out his plan. And so in verse 34 we get this reality, the burden that the narrator is canted Away from Esau. And clearly we see the responsibility here. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he considered his heritage of no value. Only to get his physical appetite. And so, when we come back to Jacob now, when we think, so God has given an oracle before they were born that he was going to carry the promised line. Well, was it because of the natural birth order? No. So I ask you, based off what we've just read, was it because of his impeccable character? No. Nor is it because of human will. As we'll see, his deception, his choices had real consequences and he would really pay for them. And so would Esau. But here's the point. He would not speed up nor slow down God's plan one second. Jacob's supremacy was simply due to God's divine choice. God creating life where there was no life. God sovereignly choosing who and how his purpose is to go forward. Listen, this is the predominant theme of the Bible. This is our hope today. God created life from a barren womb. God chose the nations and the individuals within that nation to carry forth His promised seed that would bring forth our Savior. Turn with me to Romans 9. Romans 9, 6. I want you to feel this Paul writing this amazing letter. You got to think about this. Just ask God to let you feel what Paul felt as he wrote this letter, understanding better than anyone the history of what God has sovereignly promised and how he has kept it safe and brought it to pass and Christ comes, the promised seed, and what does God's people do? They reject him. And Paul's broken. How many people know that would say, I will go to hell if you will save those people? This is how you felt about Israel. So here's the question. If these are God's people, and they've rejected Him, is God's promises failed? Because if God's promises failed here, how can we trust Him? How can we know His promises for us is... New Testament Christians can be trusted. In. And so he writes, Romans 9, 6 to Romans 11 to help us understand. And Romans 9, verse 6 says, but it, is not, but it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be. Be named. Well, what do you mean, Paul? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as children of God. Well, who are the children of promise? For this is what was promised. Verse 9 For this is what the promise said About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So, what is he saying? Just because Ishmael was the son of Abraham did not make him a child of promise. What made the child of promise? God's choice of Isaac and who come after him. They are the child of promise. And so you could hear a Jewish person say, Yeah, but that doesn't really count. Besides, you know, Hagar was... No, Hagar's past." So look at verse 10. He's not done. He said, And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, now we got the, now we got the man of promise now. He has two children. Though they were yet not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Look, if you, The NSB helped me here. Here's, here's verse 11, just is where I want us to hone into. Verse 11 in the NASB version says, "For the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls." So Paul could clearly say, "God's promises has not failed." And they will not fail, because God is the one whose choice stands. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. And all those who put their faith in Christ, they are the children of promise. You see in verse 11, look at it. God's choice preceding any work of Jacob or Esau, present or future, he is completely, obviously redundant. Of course they weren't born. Of course they had not done good or bad works because they weren't born. God did not choose Jacob because of a good choice or a good work of Jacob made, but simply because God chose the least to carry forth the seed. The least would carry, bring the great news of the gospel that would come first through a suffering servant, not a conquering king. Remember, it is what Christ said. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Here's my question as we think about these things, these heavy things. What difference, what impact does God's sovereign purpose and God's sovereign plan, making your everyday life. Turn with me to 1 Peter, 3, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. What I want you to see is it made all the difference in the world to the men of the Bible. To God's people. And I wanted to make that difference for us. What difference did it make for Peter? What a difference did he want it to make for those who was writing to just like the twins in our story today, who was born, not by natural birth, but supernatural. So must we. We are born of God by a supernatural work of God. Look at verse 3. Who caused our being born again? He caused it. Look in verse 4. Then who keeps it? He keeps it. He caused it. He keeps it. How? Look at verse 5. By His power. By His power He causes it. By His power He keeps it. By, him, by His power He guards it. Now this has radical implications for our tomorrow and our today. God's plans cannot fail. Look at verse 23. To Christians, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, can't you hear him talking to Nicodemus? Saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says, How? How do you be born again? He said, Haven't you read your Bible, Nicodemus? You must be born of the Spirit. This is what I told the prophets. I will pour out my spirit among you. I'll take out your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh will cause things to happen in your life. People of God do not exist by natural birth, but by the Spirit of God that that births them again. They are born again by the Spirit. They exist because God brought them into existence by God. That's what Isaac would say. That's what Jacob said. That's what Joseph said. So hear me clearly this morning. God did not move toward us. God did not move toward you because you were great. Because we chose the good. He moved toward us to display through the least his amazing grace. That's why He saved you. Is this not what He told His people? It's not in your notes. Look on the screen. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord has said His love On you, and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt. This has radical implications of your life in at least two ways. It should implicate your worship, and it have implications on your mission. So I asked, as God's sovereign choice this morning, bring you to your knees and humble, grateful worship and then set you on your feet free to obey His mission. Listen to me. If this word today has not humbled you, you do not understand it. And if it has not made you a more grateful child of God, you do not understand it. It should both humble us. It should make us grateful. It should compel our worship, not with just our lives, not just with our, not just with our money, with everything that we are. This is how he encouraged the Corinthians, those struggling believers in First Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. is what he said. Again, talking to the church. Look at verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in, in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why did He choose these? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30 is your reality. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, those that are in Christ Jesus, wisdom from God, a righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Look what he said in verse 26. What is he saying to the Corinthians? Look at you! <laughs> That's what he's saying. Just look at you. Do you think the sovereign king called you Because you were that wise, even by the world's standards, but because you're that powerful by the world's standards, or because you were somehow in the know? No. God calls you because you were the foolish. You were the weak. You were the low. But God chose you. Do you see how this should have an impact on your humble gratefulness? Why am I saved today? Because because I was the foolish one and God chose me. So I can stand up and stay today and we stand together. If I can have anything to brag about, I brag in the fact of this. I'm Christ. And Christ is mine. Listen. Listen to me. No sovereign choice. No wisdom. No sovereign choice, no righteousness. No sovereign choice, no justification. No sovereign choice, no sanctification. No sovereign choice, no redemption. The king called you. That's why you're saved. And he didn't have to. And because he has called us, we stand in his wisdom. We stand in his righteousness. He has given us. It's foreign to us, but it's ours. Because He has given to us, because our God does not lie and He does not change. We desire to be holy. Because He has given us His Spirit that gives us a desire to be like Christ. Because His Son is the one who removed our wrath, paid our debt, adopted us into the family. It's all because of Him. How does this drive our mission? And listen, tune in with me for a second. No matter what you think about anything that I've said, we have to deal with what God has said. I haven't found a better quote that summarizes what I want you to hear this morning. Christopher Wright, The Mission of God, puts it this way, Israel came into existence as a people with a mission entrusted to them from God for the sake of God's wider purpose of blessing the nations. Israel's election was not a rejection of other nations, but was explicitly for the sake of all nations. Do you get that this morning? you got to understand the whole picture this morning. Let me read this again. Israel came into existence as a people with a mission, entrusted to them from God for the sake of God's wider purpose of blessing the nations. Israel's election was not a rejection of other nations, but was explicitly for the sake of all nations, brothers and sisters, you are saved today because God chose Jacob. And if He wouldn't have chosen him, you would be a child of Esau. We have something to celebrate. God called Himself a people to bless the nations And why are we sitting here as Gentile believers saved today? Because God called Himself a people to bless the nations. And so, go into all the world and make disciples. To this we are called. Lord, as we bow before You, in the heaviness of Your Word, Lord, we we humble ourselves before You. For You are God and we are not. We are Your children who have been allowed to peer barely under the surface of the water and to see a glimpse of how much You loved us. that you chose yourself a people to take the good news of the gospel to the nations. And we are those people. And we have received that call. So God, may we with our voices and with our hearts and with our minds, all that was in us now stand and say, Your Son is our blessed assurance. He is ours, not by the works of our hands, but by your grace alone. Oh God, we wish we had something other than these feeble bodies and few words to declare the majesty and the glory of who you are and what you've done in your world. So Lord, we give you what we have. All that we are. Lord, whether we live another hour or another 50 years, may we live to make your name known. Because you've called us to do so. We praise your Son's name. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and worship our Lord.